0: Hello and welcome to SurroundScapes, an audio and video podcast series featuring a diverse collection of interviews with thought leaders from around the world, addressing the general subject to the future of business. This content is curated by Busan Professional and focuses on the role of the oral and visual senses in creating unique, delightful and compelling experiences to stimulate business. This fourth series of Surroundscapes is focused on the future of music. and We're really concentrating on two aspects of this question. The first being new ways of both creating and presenting music. And the second being how to properly monetize and value music in these changing times. So for this episode, I'd like to introduce uh, Paul Fraser from the band Never Not Nothing. Paul's talking to us from London, and he's going to be able to talk about pretty much all aspects of this. So welcome, Paul.
1: Hi. Hi, Graham. Nice to meet you.
0: Good to meet you too, and thanks so much for your time. Can you start by telling us about your background and also the band's background?
1: Okay, so my background is, I think I've I've always worked in music. I don't think I've ever had, quote unquote, a proper job. (laughs) And that includes a multitude of things from when I was younger, playing sessions and getting some early touring years in, uh, a degree in composition, but then also moving to kind of multitasking and starting producing records and composing. Um, And at one point, I started experimenting with what I would like to call method music, where I would become very immersive, whether it's in the way it's composed, uh, whether it's going to the exclusion zone in Chernobyl to, if I'm writing a score on nuclear fallout and interviewing the people there and getting all the stories and taking all the reverb and taking players into playing the sound, or whether it's performing in an immersive show and getting the audience to kind of step away from their reality into it curated world. Uh, and that kind of led us so on to creating Never Not Nothing, the band, um, which is essentially uh, a kind of hybrid of electronic music and punk music. And um, we play immersive shows and have different characters on stage. And we like to experiment um, with really interacting with our audience and fans.
0: So when you were um doing the session playing and, and early work, what sort of music were you playing in those days?
1: Mostly like um I guess it started off kind of trip hoppy and so like and soul and, mm-hmm. and lots of rock and stuff, so it would I uh, would spend a bit of time with um with different artists on labels and be their guitarist and specialised in kind of creative, I guess, alternative guitar, essentially. Um,
0: And then uh, getting into producing, how did that happen for uh, you? I think it really
1: started from an early age. I always recorded and made my own music out of necessity. I grew up in the Highlands of Scotland and uh, didn't have a whole lot of culture on the doorstep. Mm -hmm. So, you know, any kind of window into the outside world was great. And then any kind of method of creating it myself. So, whether it be an old four track, uh, recording on tape, and then managing to scrape enough money together for a basic computer where I could use basic doors, um, which uh, were very frustrating at the time. They weren't nearly as good as they are now. yeah, so mm-hmm. I think that was mm-hmm. the start of it, and then it was uh, it was really kind of dreaming up projects and making projects with friends, uh, and being a bit of a facilitator as well. So having um, uh, had a lot of African friends quite a long time ago who were in a, an African hip hop band from Malawi, and they were had moved over to England, and um, and needed some help making records here and stuff. So that was a just once you you start doing that it kind of brings opportunities to experiment and learn and interact with other people and it's uh, I always see music as my way of kind of uh, mainlining into any kind of culture and not being a tourist ever you can always kind of find your mm-hmm. your way in and interact with people on a level and find out what's going on in their world so that's kind of where production came from for me it was more a way of interacting with lots of different artists.
0: Well, that's a, that's a really interesting concept, the idea of using music as a way in to, to be an insider in a community rather than a, you know, a tourist looking into the community. I just want to clarify uh, for, for our listeners, maybe some of whom are not technical, but when, when you talk about door, you're talking about digital audio workstation um, rather than suddenly you walk between rooms. <laughs> Never Not Nothing. Um, I read a description of you, I can't remember whether it's one that you did or was written about you, saying anarchic electro psych punk noise um, as a descriptor for the band. And it's kind of interesting to me because the sort of music you produce is not the sort of music I would listen to on a day-to-day basis, but I've been really compelled listening to, watching your videos, listening to to the music that you're you're producing in a way that I didn't really expect to be, to be honest. Um I'm probably not your target demographic either. <laughs> so how did the band come together?
1: Well I guess probably a really long drawn out answer to that. <laughs> okay.
0: uh, yeah, that's fine. Go for it. So
1: I'd known Vincent for a long time and um I was actually his 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 teacher, his like band mentor when he was was younger so i taught him kind of how to arrange and be in a band and then we lost contact while he went off to music college and i was in a band at the time where we were Mm -hmm. touring a lot around the world and um playing loads and loads of festivals and the drummer left um last minute and we were looking for a replacement and i thought it'd be nice to invite him as to audition because uh because it would be a great experience for him. And then he came in and just was really exciting to play with. And everyone else seemed kind of boring in comparison. But he was only, I think he would only just turned 18. And we were due to play, we were actually due to travel to China, which was really a really odd touring experience. We were doing a festival in China where we were doing two shows a day for six days and the audience would come through in a conveyor belt and they would stay at your stage and see you play and then move around to the next stage. And it was, it was, oh,
0: wow. yeah.
1: it was very bizarre. <laughs> a lot of, yeah.
0: Sounds it. So yes. That was in a
1: football stadium in like a, one of the Olympic football stadiums in Beijing. And so when we asked him to join and asked if he had a passport and two weeks later we were, in a stadium in China. That was our first ever actual gig together.
0: Wow. Yeah. Baptism of fire. Um, So for for people that don't know, Never Not Nothing is just the two of you. So what happened to the other band members? Did they like fall away or did you just decide to split off? Yeah, um,
1: we had a good run uh, of touring lots and making records and... The band was from different parts and you developed different interests as well. One member moved back to Africa and his mother passed, and one member is now a uh top vegan chef, and you know, it just people yeah. just yeah, you know, I think it's healthy not to go so there were it was like I want to do something other than music now. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. uh but me and Vincent had already kind of started plotting a, a side project, which then became our main project, uh, just the two of us.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you, when you started, you weren't called Never Not Nothing, you were called Black Futures. Can you talk about that and how you changed your name and why you changed your name to Never Not Nothing? Um,
1: it's directly because of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, as... Um, about a year after being called black futures we started seeing the emergence of black futures as like an, an empowering uh, motto for the for the future of the black lives matters movement and and equality in general and um with the black history month and it became the black future month as well and it was such a, a positive and brilliant message, and a, such a great use of those two words that we felt we couldn't take any, we couldn't sit around taking any agency away from that meaning. That we felt that that should be the, mean, the meaning of Black Futures, and um, so we decided to change our name, um, and uh, and that was that. I'm very happy. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's. That's a that's a great story. Did why were you called Black Futures in the first place? Was there a story well, behind that? I mean,
1: we always say we're kind of positive nihilists, so it was a bit of a, a bit of a mm-hmm. play on 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 Black Mirror, and also, uh, in my head, is always a bit of Rice sense of humor as well, a bit of doom and gloom. That oh. <laughs> <laughs> the future's always, mm-hmm. always dark, and everything always ends in darkness. And <laughs> um, why not, you know, shine a bit yeah. of light out there and um, and be positive in that kind of cosmic scale of things. So it was very, it was very different uh, use of that language. Um, and whilst we don't advocate the reduction of mm. language, we thought it was really important that it had a. A singular meaning at that time
0: yeah that's 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 a great story you know kind of in a way sacrificing any reputation you'd built up for the greater good of a of a really really important cause it's um you know this this whole idea i've been obviously in the last year we've been living through um somewhat dystopian times and um you know, the idea of kind of utopia versus dystopia. Um, I, I'm a big science fiction fan, and, and a lot of science fiction revolves around dystopian um futures. And there's been a lot of talk about literature written in utopian times dealing with dystopia and, and the reverse. So, uh, literature written in dystopian times being being naturally more um optimistic because of it. Um, and uh, a a guest on another episode in this series is Claire Evans from the band yacht and uh, they did an album called the i think it's called the I Thought the Future would be cooler or something like that which, <laughs> yeah. which is the other side of it where you're you're kind of looking at a utopian future and get there and and it's not so much but um anyway, so the band came together. you had a great story you were telling me before about your very first gig so can you tell me about you know you you decided to come together with vincent do something together do a side project that became a main project how did you go about like breaking that to the rest of the world working on material building a fan base yeah that's
1: interesting because we we kind of conceptualized the whole project as this as kind of uh initially the first album was kind of party music for the end of the world it was kind of again, like you're saying, projecting forward into a dystopia or a utopia and dealing with the ideas of of, of our future is a really interesting subject matter. And something that everyone should kind of engage with, the idea of how you want your future to be or how bad it could be if you took a few too many wrong turns uh, on a kind of grander scale. So we felt like our first show couldn't just be you know down the back room of the pub essentially, we wanted to um, people to experience it sonically in a in its full kind of spectrum, but also conceptually and visually. So we put on an, an immersive show, we wanted to kind of recreate that feeling when you first go to a show as a kid. You know, that first show you go to, it's never quite the same. You're like, you're shitting yourself, you're really scared, you're equally excited and Mm -hmm. it's just these Mm -hmm. creatures come out on stage and you're just fully elated and connecting with loads of people and um at some point that wears off when you've been to a million shows and you find yourself stood at the back drinking a beer (laughs) and uh, we wanted to Mm -hmm. take this kind of dystopian future utopian future to the max and then kind of use that as a way to pull people away from their kind of norm and it was in the show was done in the middle of the day so people turned up at i think like one o'clock in the afternoon so we're really trying to pull them out of their day and so um what we did was just we sent out um this really psychedelic video that just contained uh, a time a place and a password um and that was it and (laughs) it was quite interesting because we're like is this going to work? Are people actually going to go, I will make the effort to come to that or oh, this is too cryptic for me, I'm not going to bother. <laughs> but everyone turned up uh, and they, you know, there was a, we had a series of characters. The first character was a friend of ours, all dressed up in a full kind of Berber outfit, holding a rusty metallic version of our, our logo above his head outside a train station in central London, which is probably a kind of normal site. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so they would go over and say the password, and he would silently usher them over the road to the pub, and they were okay, great, it's a gig in a pub. I can deal with that. They get in the pub, and they meet our booking agent mm-hmm. at the bar, and they're like, okay, what's happening? What's going on? Okay, we'll just wait for everyone to arrive, but here's your blindfold. And uh, everyone's there. They've got their blindfold wondering what's going on. And our agent gets on the phone, says the next password, a couple of white vans pull up outside the pub. Everyone's ushered outside and seated in the vans, told to put their blindfolds on. (laughs) And uh, off they go. Once they're in the van, they're essentially in our kind of art world where we created our own. Music versions of the of the album, eight bit versions of the album, and populated it with our own computer generated hosts. And um, eventually, when they were turning up at the uh, the show, they were allowed to take their blindfolds off, and there were hazmated characters um, giving out. We made loads of punk scenes for them that kind of had all the themes of the band in there and giving name badges and they had to put on blue sockies as they enter the, <laughs> the, uh, the test. Um, I guess the set essentially it was like a movie set mm-hmm. and, um, there was a laboratory yeah. there was two laboratories and they were ushered in and they were made to go through like Pavlov's dog type experiments to get drinks. And, uh, and then there were sirens going off and they were ushered into the next room, which was essentially made to look like a dirty laboratory. Um, and they were seated in the viewing platform <laughs> and it, which was a, a studio that I'd been producing records in. And uh, so we'd mixed the sounds. So it was like they're all sat in a massive pair of headphones. So it was really immediate and really sonically powerful. Um, and we were on the other side of the glass, so they were viewing us through the glass, and um, we played our first show. We couldn't see anyone, because the strobe was so bright. <laughs> and uh, it was really intense, and it was a really great experience to be able to kind of play like that, and for them to be able to watch without any kind of inhibitions. We tried to just design design it so no one felt uncomfortable watching us it was and they could be intrigued and they could look at what we were doing without feeling self-conscious and also get the full sonic impact and the visual impact and the conceptual impact of the whole thing and um we never actually in the same room as them we disappeared the lights went off the siren went back on and they were ushered out of the studio and that was that
0: (laughs) (laughs) That sounds amazing. I'd love to have been there. Um, there's, uh, you know, a number of things came to mind. I, um, An artist that I very, I love her work is Marina Abramovich. And uh, she gave a TED Talk where um, she had us blindfold ourselves um, for the first part of the talk. And then you know, she she came on, started her talk, and then we could take the blindfolds off. And uh, my wife has a business which is kind of dormant now, but it was it's a jewelry store, which is ephemeral so um and we we did these early like pop up stores they'd be called now I and again, it was like the invite they'd get a save the date to tell them when it was, but then the invitation for where it was was always interactive, so there' would be things like bars of soap with the invitation in the middle kaleidoscopes kind of um what else? 35 mil film with a bit of it. So it's kind of I'm really fascinated by this this idea of making events that are immersive and memorable. And it sounds like right out the box you you, you did that. You kind of nailed your colours to the mast and said, okay, we're gonna grab you and we're going to immerse you in our world. Um What happened there? So, was this was the object of the gig to create a buzz or to get signed? We we did two shows
1: in one day, and one of them was all music industry, uh, mostly record labels and promoters. And um, we we did get signed off the back of that show. Essentially, I think every label that was there called us, called our manager back within half an hour of being there. So it definitely (laughs) made a made an impact obviously we've worked really hard on the music beforehand so it was it was ready it was kind of launch day and then it was also a way of inviting lots of supporters of our music previously along to kind of show what we've been hidden away working on and friends and family as well as a way of kind of really getting them involved in the ground zero of the project and Making them a part of it as well, and it's a bit of a treat as well. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you film yeah, it, it? It's or, all filmed.
1: Or... Yeah, it's all documented. <laughs> I'll send you. I'm sure I can I dig it. it out. I'm not sure it exists online at the moment. I think we're holding.
0: Yeah, I'd love. I'd love to see it, and I'm kind of fascinated by that kind of usually when bands get documented it's after they're famous and you know, you, so you see them being kind of swanning around in limos <laughs> and things and i remember joe jackson wrote a book that ended when he got his first record deal and it was kind of fascinating because i was playing in a band at the same time as he was and we were kind of playing the same venues i didn't know him at the time but you know kind of in transits going up and down <laughs> yeah. the motorway and things and, and that was super fascinating book to read because that's in some ways the interesting time in a band's life before it hits the big time if it ever does and uh, and then he did a tour where he he was his own support act so you know he played but the support act was him reading passages from the book and it was it's just like yeah. a fascinating thing so were you able to get those music industry people along because of your previous work what what kind of inspire them to come along or was it just the nature of it's the actually
1: event? down to our team that we put together around the band before launch because of our, mm-hmm. our managers at the time and our and definitely our our lawyer essentially invited everyone along and he had seen us play live in right. either. so i know he was absolutely bricking it <laughs> i hope this is good otherwise <laughs> i've just put my reputation on the line and like everyone's had to wear blind yeah. clothes <laughs> so uh, yeah a lot wow. of people put a lot of faith in us to to pull that first show off and I think that that's what comes with ultimate conviction which yeah. is is good to have in this day and age as an artist because I think you it, it's so important to kind of be have a conviction about what you're making and why you're making it because otherwise you're easily distracted um and often the dreaded algorithm has a lot to say about it too mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: so when was this how how long ago was my, it for your my <laughs>
1: my concept of space and time is <laughs> ain't that great <laughs> i think that's why people call me space i i can't remember <laughs> <laughs> um I'd have to sit and think about it. I'm not very good at judging. But,
0: but roughly, was it like I a couple think of years probably ago? probably about
1: or... four years ago, I'd say.
0: I love your description of your first album there's party music for the end of the world. That that's like brilliant. I mean it's it's so evocative. Um and did you did you actually have that concept? Before you did the album, was it like we're going to make party music for the end of the world, or was it something you realised uh, no,
1: definitely beforehand? I think the um, mm. the genesis of the project was the song "Love," um, where we'd kind of talked about what kind of what the um, the art world that our our project lived in was like, and then we made that song, and the, it's the lyric is 10 seconds to the 10 minutes to the end of the world let's make love so it's like it's pretty mm-hmm. yeah straightforward right at the beginning <laughs>
0: <laughs> interesting i've always been fascinated by uh, Olivier messian's quartet mm-hmm. for the end of time and yeah uh, you know, that concept of creating music for for uh, you know, kind of the end of the end of things is is fascinating so after that album, um, you must have had a few years between that first gig and the pandemic hitting. What? How did your career evolve? How did you build a fan base? And what did it look like before we all got Well, down? we
1: started out by exclusively only playing immersive shows, which was really great. But at a certain point, we had to kind of branch out and start touring. Um, and the, that was a really interesting point where we were, finding how we could take those elements of uh, that made the immersive show and created that environment and take that and replicate it every night on the road. Uh, so mm-hmm. that was really fun. Uh, uh, we ended up taking hazmated dancers essentially that would be able to, because we're two piece and we're locked into playing a lot of the time and um, we get as much chance to venture out into the crowd and do the Iggy Pop thing as we can, but we wanted these kind of other characters to be able to, you know, a bit like um, the guys from Public Enemy when they come out and they do the kind of choreographed thing, but then they can go off and all of a sudden you turn around and one of them's in the crowd dancing next to you and really kind of the show comes out to you and pulls you in and invites you in invites you to kind of lose your inhibitions a bit more um, in a kind kind of way. So we started doing that and touring and started in earnest the release campaign for the album, um, which we were kind of, was just getting into full swing as COVID hit. We uh, we came off tour, a two-month tour around Europe, in and we did a tour of the UK in we came off the road probably the 10th of March I think and then went straight into lockdown right Uh, yeah wow so
0: so you did actually get to finish your tour before
1: yeah so it was a the irony is we haven't since our album came out we haven't actually played a headline show it was a support tour so we haven't actually played our album Mm. in full (laughs) <laughs> yet live even though it came right. out a little while yeah. ago so we came back and the plan was already for us to um, we'd kind of been in isolation just before we went on tour doing a film score we'd isolated um, in the middle of nowhere to get this film score done and also the, the film was in a, an isolated house in the middle of nowhere so we wanted to recreate the conditions a little right. bit be our own captors essentially.
0: <laughs> uh, wow. So then you came, came back, back to the, the same thing. thing. Well, we
1: ended up going to a residential studio for, we were planning to go away again and isolate and make some more music. Um, we we're working on a, an EP called the Art Ritual EP, the series of EPs that uh,
2: mm-hmm.
1: kind of short format releases where we can try different ideas and collaborate with people and kind of treat each song as its own world. So we went and disappeared for three weeks to do the material you would have heard, Maximum and Ritual Destruction, and um, essentially deal Mm -hmm. with with our ideas of the pandemic in the world at the time and kind of process that. And I, I call it like we were... A few isolations deep, feel <laughs> <bit> like Inception. <laughs> I don't think I left the studio for about uh, at least three weeks before I left the gates of the studio.
0: And you mentioned, you know, this this new material, but uh, you've on your website got some amazing videos where you've presented some of those songs in in really um, stunning kind of visual. Backdrops. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that and how you created that?
1: Because we always go go so maximum everything. We always we make a little rod for our own back. I think sometimes. So we we finished the material and wanted a way to to yeah to show to show people in a show. So we we came up with this concept: the live from a void, like a essentially we were living in a bit of a void at the time and we all were so we put the show on and we created this idea for a stage with a split screen where we would be inside the imagery and um, we started animating some footage and they kind of got carried away and we've made all of the video for the uh, for the screens so it would really be a fully immersive experience where you're getting the the actual physicality of the music but then you're getting all the visual psychedelics and and kind of the impact of this imagery in and around us um so we spent a long time animating learning how to animate vince did an incredible amount of time editing <laughs> single frames mm-hmm. and going essentially in order to get freedom we always end up going quite analog in what we do in order to take it into techn- technology so that we can do it ourselves so um, some of the for maximum was a lot of zoetrope stuff it was a, a massive image mm-hmm. where we used multiple multiple animations on the same image so that we could zoom around the, the, uh, the spinning image essentially to create different um, mm-hmm. almost a queasy type effect where you're seeing different things and it's yep. really cool where when you start oscillating those things differently you get sometimes you get a kind of speeding up and slowing down of that of that animation where it, it's uh yeah it's quite interesting that moment where your eye just gets tricked into it being real and, and then disappears again
0: it's really um compelling and and just as you say really kind of maximalist it's it's like yeah overpowering did you w- was life from the void like a live stream or something or was it just a um
1: it was a concept and um i think really we wanted to do it as a live stream but we didn't have the facilities at the time to do it so we we filmed it all and then and then put it out individually as individual songs so we could Rip feed the content yeah. around the the singles, which is nice. And also, really wanted it to mm-hmm. be for everyone. The the one bugbear I had at the time about live streams is that if you bought a ticket, you got to see it, and then and then it's gone. You know, I just wanted people to be able to come back. And sometimes the best kind of videos of of bands performing, you want to watch over and over again, don't you? You want to go back and you do, yeah. And kind of lock into it and and it should be exciting.
0: Yeah, that is a you know interesting point you you bring up about you know, live streaming and paying for things and and um, you know I think at the beginning of the pandemic a lot of artists kind of just basically retreated into their living rooms, brought out their acoustic guitars, and kind of did yeah. Facebook Live or you know YouTube um, sessions for for their fans, uh, just like as a way of communicating, connecting. Um, and we've seen now much bigger live stream shows. Um, my brother-in-law actually lives in LA and, and is a film producer. And he's he's on another episode in another series of Surroundscapes. But he interestingly pivoted to forming a company called Pure Sets, which does COVID um, monitoring, um, social distancing, setting up different zones, and, and then testing and PPE and stuff, but he's also been very involved in the, some of the big live streamed events like the yeah. Billie Eilish one and a, a few others. And that, that was interesting to me and, and what you did was interesting in the same way in that it well, Billy Eilish one used AR to, to a certain extent to pre- present something that would have been really, really tough to do actually live. Um, um, have you been able to do stuff that would have been difficult to, to tour with, or do you think you could tour with what you do?
1: I mean, Life from the Void was definitely that. I think we have a, an extremely different budget to Billie Eilish. So, yeah. <laughs> what, <laughs> what we were doing with Life from the Void was going, okay, well, we don't need the budget to tour this equipment. Our friends that run the company are, are learning the learning to us for free, essentially we had to become everyone. We would the audio engineers. Um, the only luxury we had was working with our friend who's an amazing lighting designer and he did the lights and then we animated, did all the visuals and so it was, it was a lot of work and it was pretty much just the two of us doing absolutely everything mm-hmm. um, to get that 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 what we didn't want was that there was a lot of people playing guitar in their living rooms, which was lovely, a really nice personable way to connect with people. But we wanted to put on something, a production that felt like you were drawn into the show and Mm -hmm. it had that maximalist quality, technical quality, it had technicolor and was like something we wouldn't be able to afford to tour with that setup or... Mm -hmm. You wouldn't be able to see or jump around and see what we were playing that close up. And so, isn't it a a way to kind of pull people into our show? Normally, our shows are very energetic and people spend a lot of time jumping around, might not spend all that much time watching Mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, it's nice to sit for people to sit back and see it. And then, we've been developing other ideas of how to bring, how to do things we wouldn't normally do in a kind of non touring environment with socially distant shows that we're still yet to pull off because of lockdowns and everything. but we' developed a show called Sonic Shock Therapy, which um, is a distant show where everyone becomes that attends becomes their own sound system. So they have a subsonic vest that vibrates kind of from like 30 Hertz and below. and it's like standing at the front of a show and just having your body get vibrated and they have in-ear monitoring and so they're really experiencing the best of the sound they don't have any of the acoustic anomalies so we can do the show in almost any space really as well which allows us to go into more dramatic spaces as Mm -hmm. well to really enhance the production and then there were lots of immersive um, and interactive elements to the show where they would sonically they would be the first things they hear so we tuned a bunch of um, reclaimed tubing to the to different harmonics of the first song and they would spin them and they have what we call vibe conduits either side that directs the interactive stuff. So they mm. basically have a little in-ear instructions of, of what's going to happen when they first plug in and they have to follow their guides and they start spinning and they create a soundscape that gets picked up in the stereo mics and feeds back into their headphones. And they have that interaction of actually making the sound and seeing it and hearing it. And then the sub drops and their bodies. Yeah. <laughs> by, by. So we're thinking about how we can use this technology that um, so with the companies we're working with to really create music it to its maximum, to create a scenario where you're really a part of the performance and you're getting all the things, that excitement that you would do if you were at a show, a rock and show.
0: Wow, yeah, I, this is one of the things that drew me into to, uh, to talking to you. This this kind of idea of these these events, socially distanced events, as we come back, because you've got some fabulous ideas as to how to you know, really create these experiences and, and memories that that kind of I've been banging on about in this podcast series for for ages now but but you're really taking it and running with it this idea of presumably the idea is to create like you did with your first gig something so memorable that people will you know 30 years later say i was there on that day i remember it like it was yesterday um how big are the audiences you're looking to perform in front of
1: now we're very reduced in capacity obviously because um, I think we probably have a maximum of twenty that we could do so it's twenty people, so it's very small and intimate um and that's really down to what um so we're working with subpack and Shaw, and they are lending us the equipment to go and do these shows um and uh so we have a, a technical limitation, and then also space-wise, getting enough space between people, mm-hmm. um, and having a positive interactive experience. But what we're also trying to do is to send have multiple ways of enjoying the show. If you can get to the show and get a ticket, then that's great. If you then you miss out on one of the shows, we we're, we're trying to keep them quite short, so we can do multiple ones through the day. And mm-hmm. essentially have a a matinee show, two or three shows a day, and then if you want to stream it, you can stream it. If you want to have a pack sent out with the components of the show, and you can interact with it from home, you know, if you've got VR, you'd be able to to do it in VR. So I think it's quite interesting um and something i'm quite interested in consuming as well is when there's a band i love doing a special show say in tokyo and i'm not there i can still interact with it here and then i'd definitely likely to go to the show when it comes to london too because it's a totally different experience you know you can sit back and watch what different people are doing and have different perspectives and um you can listen more intently without the kind of reverberation around you and other people standing in front of you. It's 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 a different experience. It will never replace the actual live experience, mm. but why not do both? <laughs> yes,
0: yeah, it's, it's fascinating. This ties into. Um, I was talking to to a, a guy called James Patton, who I was telling you about before this podcast started, who um, does. Hmm, technology events he's done you know super bowl shows and and ces trade shows for intel and things and and some stuff for bjork and he was talking about this concept of being able to send packs out like you were talking about but also with timed events so that you know things unwrap um as the event's going on, so so you know it's kind of time coded, and I, I think I, yeah. I want to introduce you to after after this because uh, he you know you may be able to uh, he may have some stuff that might be interesting to you. But I, I I love this idea that that you can go, you can you know also listen to it streamed. You can get packs sent. And one of the, th- the things I've been hearing about as I've talked to people coming back after this, and particularly with these shows with big production values, um, is this idea of somewhere in between that. So maybe there's there's one event held in a big city, but there are satellite streamed events that are still in public venues, but but they're kind of live streamed so that they're, they're almost like satellite events. So you still get to be with like-minded people but you're not physically at the show. Is that something you've thought about doing, or is that you
1: know? um, not that exactly? I don't think. But well, that is interesting. Um, I think for bigger shows, I think if you're in a quite a cult act
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and you're playing, you're not playing stadiums at the point. I think that people want that intimacy. And then maybe standing. Um, when you go to a show over a certain size, when you're playing stadiums, you are most of the crowd are actually watching the screen anyway. Yeah, yeah. Because you're so minuscule and you're so far away, the crowd so far away from what is actually happening, there's very little detail. So it does make total sense to take a show like that and have satellite events. Um, I also think that the idea of Going more analog again and doing more doing smaller shows with more in a residency style is quite interesting because Mm -hmm. then it's um you're spending more time in an area and you're giving more back to that local economy, um, and you're traveling less as Mm -hmm. well. There's less of a carbon footprint, so I thought that was an interesting idea rather than. I think most people would say they prefer to go to to shows uh, in a slightly smaller capacity where the audio is better. As soon as you get in the stadium, there's a lot of problems with delays and reverberation, and actually being in a place where you can enjoy the music that is being played.
0: Yeah, I, I totally with, with you on that one. I love going to small shows, but, um, and, and you know, you feel connected in a way that you don't otherwise. I also want to point out something we talked about before we started recording, which is a lot of these events that you've been able to do, you did by pulling in favors, uh, by, you know, by, by talking to people. So, you know, the, the, the thing I wanted to highlight is you don't have to be a, a massive act with huge budgets and uh, something that, that Glenn and I talked about. Glenn's the person that introduced me to you um, was the fact that our industry is an industry that that is a very friendly industry where people are very um, happy to lend people their expertise, you know, their contacts and things. And I think it's really important that, that artists and bands do that and, and reach out to people and say, you know what, you know, I'm trying to do this thing. Can you help? Is that how you've done it?
1: Yeah, I mean, everything in music runs off friendships, I'd Mm -hmm. say. Um, And wanting to... A lot of the people we worked with initially are people that um, I've been friends with for a long time and also we'd, at different times, always got excited about maybe getting a chance to do something together at some point and all we could do this wild thing and that wild thing. And so when you when you have friendships like that that are based around the will to do something together when you get finally get that opportunity it's great and mm-hmm. it really it really is about having building friendships and and connections with people so yeah. whilst we do lots of use lots of technology and music, it is very analog in that sense that we've always kind of been it's always been based around community essentially
0: mm-hmm. so um You know, you were saying earlier that you'd just before the pandemic you'd come off a support tour, which is a very traditional way of kind of building a fan base. Um, With your first album release and and the tour, had you begun to build a a significant fan base?
1: We we had just started before the pandemic. Yeah, but the reality of it, I think, for bands starting out. Um, building their fan base for, as we're a relatively new project. Um, that is the, your, the main the main way is getting in front of people and playing. It's the main way to kind of gain actual fans, fan fans that will come to shows, buy tickets and buy records. Um, and through touring with people like Frank Carter, we were building a fan base um, and it's very very digital, very difficult uh, in the digital realm to be able to to connect with someone in the same way as you do when you're at a show and they come and talk to you and buy a record afterwards. Mm-hmm. It, it, um, it's very difficult, depending on what kind of genre of music you're making, but I think anything with the energy of music we have still very much um, lives live. lot of the time um Mm. and uh when you hear it you want to go see it live so (laughs) that's the that's the point
0: as you've been putting out this content during the pandemic has that been able to increase your fan base or is it is it the people that saw you before that are that are watching those have you found ways of maintaining momentum at all
1: i would say it's mostly people maintaining the fans we already have, and then there's a little bit of increase through mm-hmm. through visibility online and um, podcasts and blogs and and um, doing interesting projects. Um, but it's it's very it is definitely difficult. It's more it's more difficult doing it that way. It's very. And I've seen it with lots of bands that I've produced that especially some of the younger bands that are just starting out as well, I've found it very difficult to make any progress throughout mm-hmm. the pandemic because they haven't been able to reach these fans quickly yeah. easily. Um, and they should, the, the, that's the frustrating thing because the, the internet is supposed to be this great leveler and they're supposed to, you're supposed to have more agency But it isn't necessarily the case, you know. It can you can create amazing content and amazing work, but it can um, it can sit and go out to your like five of your ten people that follow you if you're only just starting out, and not everyone actually sees it. So you have to almost get into the science of uh, of the algorithms and the The platforms that you're releasing on and that's definitely for me as an artist and a a creative is a very alien way of of working Mm -hmm. Um, and also quite demotivating so you have to work hard to make art not content all the time um otherwise you may as well (laughs) go and get a desk job
0: yeah yeah (laughs) totally totally it's interesting there's a um um yeah, I was talking to a guy called John Cotton, who who um, does a wonderful artist called Joe Hamilton that that um, he works with, and and they've been fairly successful. She makes music that's um, really deeply affecting to a few people, and um, it's building like a, a global audience of a few people in each place, and and you know the 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 benefits of being able to do that, whereas in my day when I was you know playing music you literally had to go and build a local following and a regional following and it was all geographical and now you have that that canvas where you can you know easily communicate with people in japan or australia or something but then you have the issue that you've got you know you can play in front of 10 people in any given city in the world but you can't make that work as a tour um so kind of the The last topic i want to talk to you about and and it's an important one i think to both of us is how musicians can make a living in this economy where streaming has devalued recorded music um to to almost zero um you were talking about these concerts that you did you're planning to do with like 20 people at a time what are the ticket prices going to look like in those concerts cuz you know there's a lot of cost involved putting them on for a very few people are they affordable
1: yeah um i mean they're not going to make a profit mm-hmm. <laughs> it's definitely not a business decision it's more it's uh it's providing some people with an experience and the narrative of Of what we're doing as well and introducing people to the idea of the band so then when it opens up again we can experience it in person um so no it's i mean that is a way of making content art i guess Mm -hmm. essentially on the Mm -hmm. larger scale but and then thanks to very few people um and streaming it as well so Mm -hmm. uh it's definitely not a uh a financial decision <laughs> mm-hmm. doing a show like that at all. Um, it's mainly it's doing a cool art project and getting more exposure and more momentum when that's very low on the ground.
2: Right.
1: Uh, so as far as kind of making a living as a musician, um, I see this from lots of different points. We obviously personally um I work as a producer and a composer and songwriter and as an artist. Um, All of them involve my artistry and use of technology. Um, So I do all of those things to make a living um, as a musician and an artist. Uh, And I do that to give myself the freedom to, to create the music I, I like as well and work with projects that I'm extremely passionate about.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, as far as kind of seeing, obviously, then dealing with lots of different artists and seeing how they are now working, reacting to this as well, the rate of release is right up. Mm-hmm. Whereas it used to be album, two years of touring and, and maybe a bit of time out and working on the next album, it's generally a year, album a year or album every year and a half, or your constant singles or you know, the amount of content that gets put out now, and that is is tenfold, in order to keep things moving
2: mm-hmm. and
1: staying relevant, but also to generate more income from streaming by just releasing more mm-hmm. content. I don't think that is necessarily sustainable or good for the art form, necessarily. Mm. Whereas that pressure does create a lot of good music, it also saturates your saturated releases as well. And people need, as a fan, I want a, I want a, a period of time with the music before I hear the beat and have enough time to get excited about the new material. <laughs> Not like, oh, it's hit that time again already? <laughs> i haven't really listened to the first record yet
0: <laughs> i was talking to uh to glenn i think it was about um about the band london grammar and mm. um that they produced you know a first album which was uh, that i loved uh i thought was amazing and then kind of they went away for almost five years and then produced a second album that blew the first album out of the water it was just like a remarkable album um and they've just produced a third album, but it's only a year or a year and a half after the second one. And to my ears, at the moment, it doesn't feel like it's moved on very much. So, mm-hmm. like, I'm always listening to artists' first albums, and the ones that produce really ones that that for me are, are moving. I'm waiting for their second album. You know, can they move it on? Can they move it on? And I have a history of of liking people like Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush and people that produce like an album every decade. So they keep the fans (laughs) kind of waiting, but they do end up producing kind of the real evolutions each time. And so that, that balance between, as you say, creating enough content to, to make a living, but also moving on distinctly between releases so that there's a trajectory and, and, there's not just a load of stuff sounding the same. is is a really interesting um, dilemma at the moment.
1: Yeah, yeah, because it does. There's very few people. Um, you have to be very successful with your your um, your record in order to be able to sustain yourself or sustain the whole band and all the team around you from that release without a touring business as well and, and merchandise surrounding it, just the record, I think people generally don't look to make that much mm-hmm. off the record. It's all the things that come with the record that you can build a business from. Uh, obviously, the PRS is good, but it's so low now on, on with the streaming royalties. that. And personally, I think there needs to be some reform in that, as streaming becomes more prevalent and there's more people using it, um, I think that system should always be under scrutiny in order to make sure that the content creators and the artists are being looked after because that is essentially the product. Um, I was at a music conference once and uh, so, uh, a, someone from Spotify was on the panel and said, um, people come to Spotify because our product is great. And someone pointed out, "Well, what's your product? And they're like, it's Spotify. It's the uh, technology and stuff. Take the music away from Spotify. And it's, uh,
0: yeah, it's pretty. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, these are, these are important questions and I get very frustrated at the price that's been established for streaming. So, most of the streaming services uh, pass on most of their revenue as in the form of royalties. I think with Spotify, the the figure's around 70%. But the problem is the revenue is so low that the the, per stream is is ridiculously low. And it's going to be tough. Having started low, it's going to be tough to bring people, you know, you pay 10 bucks a month. Well, now you pay 50 bucks a month. And you know i i think it's it's been screwed up um and it's going to be difficult to claw back from there so you know it's interesting to look historically because you know 100 years ago people made all of that musicians made all of their money through live performing selling sheet music patronage um and then we got into this era of recorded music and and in the like 60s 70s 80s particularly 70s and 80s most of the money was being made in the recording so that the tours were basically adverts for the records um and now we're going it's been reversed so that the the recorded content is essentially free when my daughter goes to see kind of household name artist, she's paying up to 200 bucks for a ticket for a live gig whereas for me i remember paying like 10 pounds or something and some of that's inflation but some of it is you know people are just paying a lot more for for the big uh, global acts but that doesn't affect people like yourselves who are who are not filling those stadiums and you can't charge 200 bucks um and so you know other people have been you know doing patreon all sorts of kind of patronage has come back in again um There've been other models of of people creating added value content, you know, special content for for true fans. How you know? How do you see all of that playing out? The different revenue streams that people are creating for for themselves.
1: I think that's it's it's interesting and uh, seems like a really good way to start a a cottage industry. Essentially, a way of. Um, I've seen some people start subscription-based labels.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, where you pay so much per month and you get certain things. And it, it is a um, an interesting way of building a culture and a, a community around what you do. And, and that is a, essentially what you're looking to do as an artist, is to community people and bring people together. So I think that, that side of things is really positive. Um, I think there'll be a disconnect between... Getting to a certain point with patronage and, and building community, and then being going on to the next step and where you, where you can go from there, whether it's scalable. Um, which I guess it, if it is, it's great because it gives you more autonomy, it gives you more agency as an artist because you're being funded by your fans, you're cutting out essentially a, a few middlemen along the mm-hmm. way. Um, but I'm quite interested if that becomes more established. Um, and then it's like how do you how do you get those fans to be to want to support you and to have that value as well to to having access to other things that, uh, that a kind of a casual listener doesn't have. It's, it's quite yeah. interesting.
0: Yeah, I think I mean, and I know that you you uh, with the band do do various things on your store that are limited editions and and you know added values for you know, like the true fans. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about uh, there's a number of things we've touched on. You know, live gigs being one, um, record sales being another, and and I can even look at like podcasts and and other forms of of creative endeavor. Blogs, whatever, and there seems to be like the niche, and then the huge kind of influences, or, or you know the 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 pub band or the two hundred buck a ticket 5 <laughs> gig. And what seems to be really a problem at the moment is the middle ground, somewhere mm-hmm. between you know a thousand true fans. Uh, Kevin Kelly mm-hmm. postulated over a decade ago each paying a hundred bucks can support an artist and whether I don't believe that's true because a hundred thousand dollars minus all of the production costs and so. things isn't going to support an artist. But anyway, but yeah, but, but if you're not a true fan, but you're more than a casual listener, where, you know, what do you do then? That's, that's something that I haven't really heard a really compelling answer for. Have you got any thoughts about that?
1: As a casual, more than a casual listener, but not like a, a diehard fan. Yeah, that's because I feel like I'm so far removed from fandom now. <laughs> because yeah. my whole life's been about creating music and and building the world from the other side. I'm not sure I'm a great person to right. add. I definitely am fan of lots of music, but I think yeah, you, my. When I really love a record, I stop streaming it and I buy it mm. in physical form, and it becomes part of my collection. I actively listen to that and partake in all the artwork. And I will. Um, I think. I think there's so many levels that you can be a fan now that I think you can dip your toe in. You can take a look, and that's part is is fantastic for fans because you can go. Oh, I like that And you Google it and you watch some live performances on YouTube and there's, you know, there's so much amazing quality things that you can go and interact with and then you can go online and buy their merch. And I think there's, there is, there's almost so much and there's, there's so much music out there and so much vying for your attention. It's how do you choose what, where you, uh, what really resonates with you? Yeah. And, um where do you find it
0: yeah I think I mean i I agree and that's that's an interesting perspective because it does paint a little bit of a middle ground but being someone who's who's really into music and likes to support artists i I as a fan um, are, am a patron of a, a number of artists but you can kind of get yourself into this this problem where you end up kind of giving everyone. A little bit every month and you end up with this huge bill every every month that you kind of got into by mistake and I'm really interested in ways of like aggregating patronage which is you know what a record label used to do but but we've kind of got the streaming which is I suppose the modern equivalent to the radio where it's like kind of lots of stuff and you don't have to pay for it or pay very little and then you know patronage which is maybe like buying the album but is usually more expensive um and i i wonder about this kind of rapper of i want to spend a hundred bucks a month on on supporting musicians how do i do that within a rapper rather than like five bucks there and 10 bucks here and oh shit i've spent 250 bucks and so i only meant to spend 100 or you know something like the neil young archives where you have to subscribe to listen to one band's music and how many of those can you support it's kind of that middle ground the aggregation middle ground um any thoughts around that
1: there's definite problems with that isn't it because you're how do you choose you are definitely, you're definitely most people are going to be limited by finances that
2: mm-hmm.
1: how many how much they can spend and so it limits you to what you can be a an active fan of, so I feel like in a way that's putting the problem with the end with the end user, you know, with the with the fan. It's putting the problem with the fan where it should really be reformed in the systems where people consume music, and it's I don't really have an answer for it just yet because it's it's very complicated. It's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so many different people involved uh, but what is on um, quivering is that people want music music is still in my mind a folk music
2: mm-hmm.
1: because it is about community and bringing people together and or and i also call it an empathy machine it helps people understand emotions and their own emotions and it is a, a tool for life and it is also as well as an art form and it's People aren't going to stop wanting music at any point soon. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, supporting the the artists and the creators is, is going to become really important because what would really be terrible, and it takes a lot of work for someone that doesn't have lots of means, in order you have to will something into existence. What would be awful if it was just... Art was just for people with the means to do it, the luxury of time and money to to do it, and it would exclude so many people. And luckily, Mm -hmm. we're in a heyday of music technology, which, which, um, where it's relatively cheap to buy a little bit of equipment and you can make a record with. And I think that's something that is amazing at the moment. If we're going to stop talking about problems, (laughs) because I don't Mm -hmm. have any answers to how we can. Apart from reforming the the uh, the way the royalties are distributed, and making sure there aren't inside deals for certain companies and certain artists, um, and uh, essentially the algorithms that point you, I mean, it's essentially all marketing. If you not if you don't have an inside person at Spotify or Apple and you're not working with them directly, it's very hard to get any kind of visibility as a complete unknown. So it isn't a level playing field essentially. But what is interesting is music technology and studio equipment has been kind of leveled. There's relatively cheap, good quality equipment, which means you can buy a computer or loan a computer and get a, and pretty much make a record i worked with an artist that got signed to sony off the back of the ep they made on a laptop using the laptop microphones and nothing else that's all mm-hmm. they had was a Excellent. a 10 pound uh, acoustic guitar from a charity shop and and a laptop and they just all huddled around it
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah uh, that's i mean that is a democratizing kind of influence the 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 availability of technology and as with all technologies same with photography and and video art and most forms of art um are the method of production is being democratized and i think that's a really good thing it's kind of echoing the punk scene in the 70s um i also hope that the appreciation of mastery is not lost in all of this so that um you know if everyone can do it um that's great and I'm all for that but I also want to appreciate the people that do it well and and that's that's the balance that we're we're treading at the moment I think how how to allow people you know there's these amazingly talented people that that as you say can buy a 10 a 10 pound guitar and make a masterpiece um and that's always been uh but also there's a load of noise out there at the minute. There's a load of people that are producing stuff that you know I maybe should have practiced a little bit more before they put it out into the world. And, and it's an interesting balance.
1: There's an argument for still kind of human curation, essentially, and mm-hmm. uh, I still find the bulk of the new music that I kind of really resonate and listen to through Friends and mm-hmm. getting recommendations, spending time with people, and going, "Have you heard this? And have you listened to that?" And and you share your new findings because because you have a, a if a, if if there's like a I get a bit annoyed with the algorithms that push you towards the same artists all the time because yep. Yep. you've listened to this and that and it. It has no humanistic quality to it, so mm-hmm. I think that that's something really. With so much con- music being out in the world and art being out in the world, I think curation is a, is a big a big thing and human curation and taste making, um, but not necessarily on a grand scale. It's as 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 kind of localized as meeting up with your friends and having a record club or or having there could be a really good recommend, you know, a kind of curation app where you get different artists and you can follow the artists and find out what they like. And I guess Spotify does that in a way. Um, yeah, but
0: not in an effective way. Probably Pandora is the most effective, um, and the work Tim Westergren's done with the Music Genome uh, project. And I also like the fact that Pandora doesn't prioritize major labels it literally it uses human curation and it literally you know records come in and they get piled up whether they're you bringing in your your own album or or bmg yeah. sending in their lo- latest mega release but pandora is only in the u.s and and um it's 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 one example of ways forward i think in a lot of um digital consumption of of anything media news, art, whatever, as you say, the internet in theory gives you the ability to have access to anything, but web filtering and unseen curation, whether by Spotify, Apple, Facebook, Google, whoever, leads you into what Eli Pariser would call these filter bubbles, where you're in this echo chamber of people that think exactly like you do, or like exactly the same music as you do, and pushing past that and seeing alternative views, I think it's getting tougher and tougher to do. Even though in theory, it's easier to do.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, w- I would agree. It's uh, it's a shame. I think that's a problem that needs solving as well. Yeah, because,
0: um, yeah, that curation, you know, kind of really, um, really. Nuance curation is is really an issue for for all sorts of data at the moment and maybe the issue at the moment in these days of kind of fake news echo chambers polarization one thing that you were talking about before that we haven't talked too much about we touched a bit about is the environmental impact of touring and um you know that what are your thoughts on that
1: Well, as artists, that's something we're really engaged with at the moment and um, essentially um, kind of opening up a a non-divisive social narrative as well through music. And uh, a lot of people are trying to do it where you're kind of normalizing the talk of environment and our impact and getting used to telling that story and projecting a future where things don't quite go to plan as well. Um, And that being a reality that your sphere of influence lasts way beyond your years. Um, And so that's something we're dealing with in our music at the moment, but also then looking closer to home um, with people like Music Declares Emergency and their No Music on a Dead Planet um, project, looking at how we can use what's available to us to lessen our impact. So we're, we're working on trying to make our studio and our touring and uh our activity as a band carbon negative um using solar power and um going zero waste um, and we're, we're trying to document that as we go create with a, a remote uh solar powered studio as well that we can uh, a mobile studio, which we can use to go around as well, and just mm-hmm. giving—we're starting to give ourselves the tools to to do our creation in a in a less impact with less impact on our uh, environment, and then looking at how to solve the problems of um, of touring in an environmentally friendly way, because there's only really one profitable way of touring, and that is is going places day after yeah. day and then wrapping yeah. up those miles and um how to offset that carbon or working with i drive an electric vehicle and use a green energy provider and making making conscious decisions and making conscious decisions with your routing as well if you're using electric vehicles and making sure that you can get from point a to point b in time and really starting to tackle the actual real problems and difficulties that come uh, with trying to have a low impact on the environment. So at the moment, we're kind of documenting that story to tell it, essentially, so that we can see what systemic barriers lie in our way to, to be able to, you know, the fact that I have to, Really go out of my way to find a cucumber that's not wrapped in plastic, <laughs> and like just
2: mm-hmm. getting
1: any kind of that. Some people, you know, touring and not saying no single-use plastics on the on the rider and being very conscious, making, telling a story that you can make a very conscious decision as an artist to to make changes in your team in order to be more environmentally friendly so and then looking at the bigger picture of how do you scale that up and what needs to change in order to scale that up and can the music industry exist in the same way and not influence climate change it's there's a lot unfortunately vinyl is going to get a bit of a bad <laughs> a bad yeah. yeah um
0: yeah in that respect uh downloads and and streaming is is kind of environmentally um better um says he as a buyer of vinyl. Um, yes.
2: Uh, but, uh, That's gonna be a hard one to give up. I think it is gonna be a
0: hard <laughs> one, yeah. And I mean, I think you know, the narrative that you're you're saying here is really important. And and I think there has been a continuum. You know, the move from incandescent to LED lighting for for uh, touring lighting was you know hugely re- reduced power bills. Um, you know, there's there's ways we as technology providers for the A V industry can uh, produce equipment that that is um less power consumptive um maybe doing these kind of in-ear gigs rather than powering kilowatts of um of sound system is is another way and and getting the thump with haptic vests and things is you know that's i'm going to be fascinated to see where this goes i i wish i was in england and could come to some of these shows uh, do you yeah. have any scheduled yet or are they are you still too much on it's, lockdown
1: it's uh yeah it's depending on how the lockdown eases at the moment so unfortunately we've been reluctant to put in solid dates because of, we, we didn't want to move them so as right, soon as right. we can they'll be they'll be in the diary
0: <laughs> so yeah thank you very much for your time and and um I really encourage people to, to to go and listen to Never Not Nothing. Look on the website. Look at the videos. You're doing some really really interesting stuff. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way of doing that?
1: Uh, I go to our website or Instagram or Facebook. I think the handle for Instagram is. I think it's all just Never Not Nothing. www dot dot Uh, It is
0: .com. It is. I'm looking at it now. So so.
1: let me check. (laughs) I'm a fountain of information.
0: Never not is a place to go. So thanks so much, Paul, for your time. Uh, Thank you for everyone for listening. Uh, Please, as usual, tell us what you think. Uh, Rate the episode on your podcast platform of choice. Suggest to us people you'd like to to hear from and uh, come back and listen to some more episodes. So thanks again, Paul. Thanks uh, to the listeners. See you next time.